Welcome to Five Dubs by MDDC Press. I'm your host, Rebecca Snyder, the Executive Director of the Maryland, Delaware, and DC Press Association, which represents news media in our region. Five Dubs focuses on the who, what, when, where, and why of local news media. We'll talk with the journalists about the stories behind the news. You can find more information about our guests in the show notes or on our website, www.5-dubs.com. Welcome. I'm your host, Rebecca Snyder, and I'm here today with Tom Silvestri of The Relevance Project. Tom was named the executive director of The Relevance Project in May of 2020, and The Relevance Project is an initiative of the Newspaper Association Managers organization and seeks to empower local newspapers to strengthen their franchises and, in turn, their important role as the community forum. So welcome, Tom. Thank you. I'm honored to be here with one of the nation's best associations. That's very kind of you to say. And I know that you have a lot of people vying for that title because NAM or the Newspaper Association Managers Group covers all 50 states and parts of Canada. Is that correct? That's correct. It's North America. Yeah, but you are pretty local because I know you you retired at the end of 2019 as the president and publisher of the Richmond, Virginia Times-Dispatch. And you were there for about 15 years, went through three owners, then the Great Recession, and then jumped right into the great pandemic with the Relevance Project. So how's that been going? It's uh, actually... Uh... It's been great in the fact that I don't have to travel anywhere, and, and that's not a factor anymore. But yeah, I'm the guy who retired into the pandemic. Uh, talk about an adjustment, but I was ready to retire, but I wasn't ready to pull out of helping our industry, an industry that has given me so much. So the Relevance Project was there waiting for someone to take the lead. Fortunately, I got the, the task, but it's going fine. It's, it's been interesting. I've always been an insider, so being an insider-outsider is something I'm learning to be. Sure. Well, tell us a little bit about the Relevance Project. What, for for those listening and people who listen to our podcast are journalists, but they're also just people off the street. So tell us what the Relevance Project seeks to do. Well, you mentioned the organization that's sponsoring the Relevance Project, the Newspaper Association Managers, which is 100 years old in 2021 and it's sort of a behind the scenes organization that few people know about unless you're an executive director of an association in the states or in canada but they decided to pull together resources and efforts to try to help our community newspapers providing just another boost in their mission to be super relevant to their communities and so the relevance project has been focused in its first six months and of course revenue no no surprise there but we're trying to pivot to this notion of newspapers being that community forum for their community and their readers uh, of issues of importance. So it's sort of got two major tasks in 2021. One, you know, advance this notion that community newspapers are their community forum. Two, amplify the revenue resources that we've been able to start putting together. And three, look for sustaining funding going, going forward. And I have some interesting insights into this movement about nonprofits I'll share with you later if you ask me. But, you know, start with revenue and audience, but, but more importantly, help our newsrooms, help our newspapers become that community forum. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's such critical work because, you know, local news and local journalism is 
critical to society and to our communities. And, and many of our members um, have really deep roots within their communities. But you're in this really interesting world. I guess it's that insider-outside dichotomy because you come from a, a close-knit community like Richmond. Right. But now you have this great national perspective to see what's happening in community journalism across the country. And I think also just kind of along with your background, you've spent 45 years in newspapers. You've been a frontline news manager. You've been an editor. You've had fancy titles like the director of news synergy and obviously community newspapers president and so you've done a lot in that 45-year career and you've seen it from a very local granular level and now with the relevance project kind of a, a more national perspective can you talk to me about trends that you're seeing in community journalism and what that looks like nationally? Yeah, you know, there isn't a more important time in the history of American journalism than right now. You know, in preparation for this, after talking to you earlier, I was trying to prepare and I started, okay, let, let me make a list of things that are of major issues, that are worries, that are opportunities. I stopped at four pages in tiny type. And the scary thing about it was it was off the top of my head, caused me to go back and get some research behind it. But in addition to it being an, an era of over-importance for American journalism, there are some huge deciding factors that will carve the path for the future. A lot of them are worries, but I've never seen the volume, the volume of issues on top of us right now. So I have a huge empathy for anybody in a newsroom. You know, it's, 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 it's a difficult time Look at the public safety of the pandemic. Journalists are first responders. Mm -hmm. they're, they're out there. They cannot do their job from just their seat. They have to get out and look at the world and report on it. So you have this urgency of the most important pivotal part in journalism and a host of issues, many of which journalists can't control. You can't control you know, the financial end of the business these days, given, given the chaos and disruption. So... Community journalism, the neat thing about community journalism is there is a huge need for it. So it's great to be in a business where people want you. They need information. Look at all the chaotic information coming out about the pandemic uh, that people are just trying to get a shot, mm -hmm. trying to figure out where to go. And so you've got journalists stepping in, stepping in admirably, trying to connect readers with healthcare providers because the systems are failing or are too frayed. So there's no question about the need, the uncertainty comes over the financial end of the business and the fact that there are so many different sources and the fact that the publishing world is no longer mass market, it's individuals, which should play into the role of a community newspaper that's super relevant to their community. So, mm -hmm. you know, you've, you've got the financial interest issues, you've got the, the pandemic and its safety and healthcare issues. Um, you've got lots of uncertainty You've got massive chaos. You've got political division. I mean, the list goes on. I'm looking at this list, and I won't read it all because it might depress, but with every problem, you can always flip it around to an opportunity. So there's also these huge opportunities. And the number one there is, you know, we're being lumped into something called the media. No, we are not the media. We're local, 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 and we've got to drive that home. And I think our markets understand that. I think our readers understand it, but there's this backdrop of negativity coming out of the media. So I think it's, I don't 
think we've been this challenged before. We've sure we've had financial recessions in you know the early 1900s, the depression, and we've come through there. We've had major technical changes, but I don't think we've had the urgency, the unprecedented pandemic, the divisiveness, and the challenges that are at such a high volume and complexity that the quantity and the serious nature of the issues demand immediate fixes, but we've got to carve out time to think about these thoughtful solutions. And that's another role for the relevance project. Mm -hmm. I don't have a deadline on top of me, although it's, I, I, I crave deadlines to get my work done, but I have enough of an understanding to step back and try to add some thought into it. You know, when I was publisher, the one thing that warned me, wore me out is that I didn't have any time to think. It was rat tat 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 tat. You know, journalists are probably more capable of handling the immediacy and the and the huge volume because they can keep turning out updates, updates, updates. But as a thought leader, it just wore the heck out of me, and it worried me that I wasn't spending more time thinking about things. So, the relevance project is all about thinking about lasting solutions when. All the while, all you want to do is just worry about one thing that matters and really apply all your efforts. So it's, well, it's, it's an unprecedented time. It, you know, it, it really is. And I, but we've had, you know, every unprecedented time is an unprecedented time. And I think journalists and news media are amazing in crisis situations because, you know, the adrenaline comes, yeah. you go, you cover. And right now we have, you know, we're, we're just, I think as a country also, it feels like we're lurching from crisis to crisis. And the news cycle is so, um, so full. It's not like, okay, and now we can recover from that. And we're moving on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. It really is just one after after the other. And so I think in addition to some of those systemic problems, we were also getting kind of frontline burnout. Yep. Um, and also... Uh, societal issues. I mean, I think the 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 racial equity discussions that are going on across our country and in our newsrooms are huge and critical right now. And they do require just as the financial, the technological, technological and, and other kind of aspects, it really does force all of us to think, to, to try and be more thoughtful and think through how are we going to approach these challenges and turn them into opportunities. What what would you define as relevance? Like, what do you think makes publications and news media relevant? Because often that people are writing into their local newspaper to ask, well, where can I get vaccinated? Or how can I be connected with services? And so like, there's a direct informational relevance, but you could you talk sort of in a yeah. wider now, let me just back up one because I, I do, do want to touch this this moment in time and what we're covering because there, there's a there's a statement that's being made that I've been thinking about when it comes to racial inequality when it comes to the toxic political environment and I've heard this phrase over and over again and it's and, and something to pause on and people are asking out loud almost daring the journalists to help them figure it out through their reporting are we in a moment? Or is this a movement? And how the journalists and newsrooms respond to that statement, is how they get the reporting right, because there's a big difference. Because if, if it's a moment, it's a snapshot. It's a fixed. It, there's nothing moving. You just take the picture and you move on. But if it's a moving movement, 
it's constantly moving and it's dynamic and it's constantly changing and constantly offering challenges. So the issue right now and that urgency is to think of things, is this a moment or is this a movement? Now, when it comes to community journalism trying to figure this out, please, I don't want to be viewed as the guy who knows it all. I, you know, that's, that's very uncomfortable to me. I'm, I would rather be a learner and learn things as we go, drawing on experience, but also drawing on research and data to go along. So I don't want to get the reputation of being a know-it-all because I'm the executive director of the relevance project. I want to be relevant because things are changing that fast. But I would offer these suggestions. One, this is a huge time to double down on accuracy. You cannot gloss this over and you can't get sloppy on it. I've heard more and more editors bemoan the fact that when they're moving so fast, they're making more and more errors and that's hurting the business. So I would approach this whole dynamic error is that the responsibility on us is to get things accurate. I would hang a banner, a figurative or literate banner over every newsroom that just basically says and plants this idea, we want to tell your story. We want to tell your story. We may not be able to do it right now, Desire and need is there, and that's the trust factor that we all deserve, deserve in our communities. And the point of the matter is, even though we think we have fewer people in some newsrooms, uh, fewer journalists than they did X number of years ago, we've got to figure out a way to tell more stories. And I'm not just talking about volume. I'm talking about differences in new fo- differences because of new formats, innovate how we go about it. But the volume is such where we have we have unlimited an unlimited platform like online. But for us to really, really get through the chaos, we're going to have to tell more stories that are accurate and try to get to more people. This is why the importance of newsrooms taking the lead on converting newspapers into a community forum is so important. Basically, the best way to reinvent the opinion side of our business, but becoming the community forum, and here's the answer to your relevance collection, makes you more connected. We have we have got to be more connected to be more relevant. You know, the uh, objectivity and the, and the step back from the participating. I'm not saying you have to be an active participating, but you've got to figure out a way to get more connected. And the more the more successful newsrooms and newspapers, the re- relevance factor goes up because they're super connected to their community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's admirable to see how many people are plugged in. And there's some amazing stories where newspapers are called upon to take the lead because people don't know what to do. So if that's your newsroom, God bless you. But the most important thing is to be super connected. And I would almost to the point, if you wanted an initiative, going back to telling more stories, being super accurate, hanging a banner that says, we want to tell you stories. I would have a weekly campaign in any newsroom right now where your organization is introduced, introduced to new people really work on getting to new people and telling your story because that's, you got the traditionalists, the ones who are addicted to newspapers, but until you make the effort to induce yourself, maybe it's because I live in Richmond where you never, where you have to be invited to everything. <laughs> the point of the matter is invite yourself to the community, you know, get out there. Even if you, even if you have to, I'm 10, I'm going to, I'm going to contact 10 people. I'm going to send 10 new people, something, out of sight, out of mind, and there's so much distraction that unless we have a campaign, we're never going to get super connected. But once you make that one connection, you can build on it. Mm-hmm. Once you make that, hello, I'm so-and-so, 
you might have a friend for life, but you got to make the effort. And and this is the issue where we're chasing the customers instead of the customers chasing us. Right. So you really you really you really got to think about the connection and layer down certain actions about how you back that up. So what I'm hearing you say is really relevance is is kind of shorthand for creating connections within the community. Right. Um, and the best way to do that is being accurate, sort of engendering trust, using all your channels and expanding your reach. You know, in, in some ways, like if you think of a news media organization as as a person, I'm I'm just thinking a lot about, okay. If you're building your brand, you you reach out on LinkedIn and you're you're getting to know certain people, you're going to different events. Everyone always tells you, get out there, just get out there and meet people and, and find your connection, what you can do for someone, and then it comes back to you. I mean, is that too trite? No, it's not too trite. And, and, and you've got to think about, you probably have to think more strategically about how to get out there because, you know, we're all in a pandemic. But, there, you know, you can use technology. I mean, yes, the definition of relevance is your readership and your viewership are strong. You know, and I've, I've taken the word growing out because in this pandemic, there's a lot of, you know, uh, unusual situations. But you're using relevance to make your readership and viewership strong. You're also using relevance to create trust in what you report. I would agree on your point about trust. You're also using relevance to make sure that your news consumers are addicted to your online updates. You know, you, there's, there's a data point there. You also use your relevance to say social media sees you as fact. That's a great measure. If you can win on social media is the new, new New York. If you can win there, you can win anywhere. You're not in advertising in the newsroom, but you're super relevant when your advertisers call you first when they're trying to make a marketing rule. And that's another thing I would urge newsrooms really learn the basics of the business side it's going to impact the newsrooms anyhow don't divorce yourself from being being very knowledgeable about how the business works these days it's changing and mm-hmm. who knows you may have an observation because you're close to the customer that the business side is missing so jump involved in there you know you're super relevant if your staffers are excellent ambassadors for your brand and for your industry and for your newspaper you're super relevant if the government calls you and asks what do you think and puts the public notices in your newspapers on your websites. Right. Um, and you're super connected. That, that, that's another measure of being super connected. But you're super connected if you're, if you're the reliable community forum. That people right. see you as that public square of civil, civic conversations where they can learn from each other and exchange ideas in, in an environment that, that leads to learning and positive action. Um, so... Tell me more about the community forum. When when we were talking prior to this taping, you had shared that you had a program in Richmond when you were at the Times Dispatch to to really foster those connections within the community about community forums and community conversations. Can you tell me more about that and, and what it was? Sure. And early on in in the relevance project assignment, I established a blog on uh, www.relevanceproject.net. And the blog is called Relevant Points. And actually, I summarized my experience with the public square is what we called it mm-hmm. uh, in a four-part series. So if anybody wants to go on to the Relevance Project website and check out that, summarize my experience just to get it down. It was written down on the pages of the Times Dispatch, but I wanted to do something different having had some time. 
So the public square was a civil, civic initiative in public discourse on issues of importance uh, to readers and uh, Richmonders and, and, and in Virginia. When I became publisher in 2005, you know, all the new, as a new person, you walk around and say, what do you think about this? You know, and you want the outsider's perspective. And I heard over and over again how insular the newspaper was. Matter of fact, somebody told me a story that they tried to have a meeting in the, in the auditorium we had in our building in downtown Richmond, and they were told nobody can come in here. And I said, well, you know, that's got to change. We're, we're part of this community and we should have our doors open particularly when we're dealing with issues of importance. So we started this civic conversation and it, it's basically what we did was we pick a topic and invite people in, you know, and it's, it's the in-person social media. We had topics like, you know, immigration, uh, uh, civil rights, uh, all sorts of issues that were in the news. And we also had some weird topics like Steven Spielberg made Lincoln in, in Richmond and we got a couple of actors for the inside story. That was, yeah. We, we also had, uh, right before the Affordable Health Care Act, two diametrically opposed congressmen debating health care. There were 400 people standing outside the building to get in for that one. So it was an initiative to be that community forum, to put ourselves in the middle of the community, invite them in, and have a conversation where they could have their views heard and discussed, reported on, and, you know, reporters were there to report about what happened in the community. It was a 90-minute conversation, usually ran from 7 p.m. to 8.30. It was set up in a U-shape. corner was a microphone. You come up, you have two or three minutes to speak. We try to get as many people as possible. We try to get conversations. We mixed the format. We had debates. We had panel conversations. We had presentations of research that was making a debut. We had newsmakers. The, the best public squares were the, when the audience had the microphone. So it was 30 minutes on the issue, 30 minutes Q&A, 30 minutes for the audience. And if you didn't give the audience the microphone, boy, they gave you heck. I bet. So <laughs> what we were trying to prove that in Richmond, Virginia, we could have a civil conversation of respect and disagree, but use disagreement as a, as a point to learn more about our community and learn more about what needed to happen next. The one shortcoming of the public square is people were so frustrated with the lack of solutions, they wanted the public square to solve problems. And that wasn't the point. One of the most difficult public squares I had was on gun control. Mm. And we had watched these two sides be unable to stay in a room with each other. The venom and toxic nature of it was so tough that our goal was simple. We were going to keep them in the room for 90 minutes. I, I'm going to tell you, I had to take a shower after those 90 minutes. It was that intense. But a funny thing happened. We kept them in the room, and it was starting to get out of control. And I pulled a couple of people off the side and said, hey, this is a civil conversation. And they said, well, we get it. They stayed in the room. They debated. They went back and forth. The program ended, and they stayed in the room. And what I learned is there was no forum for them to have that disagreement. There was too much politics involved. At the next General Assembly session, we had a picture in the paper, and the two combatants were hugging. And I have to say, I don't know whether the public square worked in the fact they were able to figure out how to stay in the room, but it led to them to be able to have a conversation later on that led to a compromise in legislation. So I feel real strongly about the need that somebody in the community needs to be that lightning rod, needs to be that place 
where people can go and have debate and share ideas. I've had many people say, I don't want to say anything. I just want to listen. Well, listening is an active participatory sport. It's probably more important than speaking, given, given how people just blather on at times. But to give people a chance to speak and to be respected and to have their viewpoints shared with the greater community, that's what newspapers should be doing. And that's what I'm getting about more stories. The public square, the community forum is one more way to tell more stories. You know, the newsroom, when I first started to do it, was really uncomfortable. They thought I was making news. But after a while, they got it, and we featured the journalists in the newsroom as subject matter experts to help us learn about various issues. But they also got an opportunity to talk to people they have never talked to before. I, I, would, I, would love it when, I loved it when the journalists would stay in the room and someone would say, hey, I, you're so-and-so with the Times Dispatch. They'd have a conversation, and lo and behold, I'd see that person get into a story. Never would have happened without the public square. I wanted to do a public square every day because I thought that would be a way to set the agenda for the news coverage. Start work, start first with the community conversation and then figure out what to report because the community was already giving you some directions to follow. Now my staff would, would, have, would have revolted if that's the case, but I think there's some sort of a message there that if you started each day by being that community forum, I dare say that your report would be richer. Mm-hmm. So uh, how did you reach out to people and get, uh, you know, was it an engineered cross section? Were you worried about just having so many people come and flood in and yeah. fill the capacity? Tell me, I guess, a little bit about the mechanics of how yeah, you did the, that. Well, the first the thing about a newspaper and, and its website is that you've got a built-in events inviter. So, you know, you're guaranteed to get reader's interest by putting in information about the upcoming event. What would happen is there'd be three parts to the coverage. One, the preview, which included reporting on that issue. So let's say the issue was affordable housing. Um, The newsroom would usually do a big takeout the Sunday before the public square to at least report on, to identify all the issues. So you had a basis of information that you could react to. Then there was the coverage of the event itself. Then after that, we published a transcript, an edited transcript online. It was the full transcript. So you had the preview, what was happening at the event, and the transcript, which had all of the comments. So over time, we would invite people to be in the audience. They may not be on the, the DS, they may not be in debaters, but we knew they played a role on this issue. We wanted them to be involved. And then when they became pivotal parts of the conversation, because you could turn to them at key points and say, could you add a little bit more perspective on this? Um, the, the, the high wire act was just what you alluded to is we never knew how many people would show up. Well, we knew we had 185 seats and we knew a standing crowd was not a good crowd. <laughs> so we had a spillover room. We broadcasted it live on, we live streamed it live on timesdispatch.com, which later became richmond.com. So we used the newspaper and our sources to invite people in. But, you know, to me as a publisher, it was very important to say who, see who would come. Um, you could, you know, you could fill all 185 seats with 185 patients. But to me, it really was whether we had any staying power. And I can say, out of, I, we did 70, I did 78 as a moderator. I moderated every one of them. And it, the audiences ranged from, you know, 500, like most of whom couldn't get in, to the smallest one, which was 13. Mm-hmm. But but the interesting thing about it, the, thir- the one with 13 people 
might have been one of the best public squares. And you know the reason why? It was supposed to be a, a prayer about um, a governor who was in a bunch of trouble. And we wanted to get the public's read on, you know, what they thought about this situation down at the Capitol. People were, what we, we made the mistake is we were one week too late. Everybody was so sick of the story. Who the heck would want to spend their evenings talking about the governor and his problems, you know, get them out of there. Uh-huh. Um, but the 13 people who showed up, among the 13 were two legislators, one from the Democratic side, one from the Republican side. So we pulled up our chairs and these 11 other people had this intimate conversation about how the General Assembly worked. And to a day, people told me that they, they would never have gotten that lesson if it hadn't been for the public square. So size may matter when you're counting heads in stadiums, but when it comes to civil discourse, it doesn't matter how many people show up. It matters who show up. Mm-hmm. And, you, and if you treat everyone with respect, it becomes a following. So even though you may have gone to public square number 12, but you follow the remaining 60 because you're part of that membership of believing in civil conversations. We tried introducing questions from social media, but it just disrupted giving a mic to somebody and letting them go for three minutes or five minutes. Um, But I think it's, I'm thinking about how this can be sort of amended almost into a a Zoom session or whatnot. I think it, it definitely translates very well I'm, and as we as we look to our time and start to wrap up, I wanted to ask about how you facilitated that as a as a moderator, and also in a, in a situation like this, how you all kept your neutrality and and what the and your objectivity as a news gathering source. Did you did your staffers feel pulled or pushed in, yeah. in different directions? Well. Uh, for instance, if any one of your member newspapers, any, any editor or any publisher wants to talk to me about the public square you know, offline, I'll be happy to call them back. Uh, it's interesting. I've, I've given this I've given many, many workshops about how to do the public square. And a lot of people sort of get queasy because it's very difficult in moderating civil discourse. So a lot of publishers are, are afraid that all the cranks will show up and it'll be an unpleasant experience. Hey, I was a crazy publisher. I'd rather get it in person than in an email or on social media, because in person you can do something with it. So to answer your question, because I was the publisher and not the editor or the opinion editor, I was Switzerland. I would say at the outset, hi, I'm Tom Silvestri, the publisher of the Richmond Times Dispatch, but I'm your moderator. And so I never took a side when moderating. My job was to get as many people to the microphone as possible and to help them articulate their point, to make that point, to engage with the audience. So the one requirement uh, that we had was, if you're gonna make comments, you gotta be civil. And we're not gonna tolerate uncivil behavior. One of the more proud facts of the public square is this. Did 78 of them, we've only, we only asked two people to leave. One person threatened one of my people who had the microphone, because he was frustrated to get the microphone, he made the mistake of doing it in front of a security detail for a congressman. So that, you know, that took care of himself. <laughs> the other one, a guy just stood up and he was filming it and he blocked the people behind him and he wouldn't sit down. Mm. Can you imagine over thousands of people who attended the public square and we've only had to ask two people to exit? That told me that people really are craving that civil conversation. So 
As a moderator, you show respect, you demand respect. You make sure the sound system works so everybody can hear. And you encourage as many people to talk in that 90 minutes as possible. And you invite them and you thank them. The other tip of it, if you want people to stop talking, you walk towards them. That was my biggest public square tip. You, the minute you start talking, they know they got three seconds, two seconds, one second. And then you take the microphone away from them saying, hey, other people want to talk. Most, right. people, most people will give you the benefit of the doubt on that. Well, I'm, I not, think saying, I'm not saying it's easy either. <laughs> it, it is it is difficult to be a, an artful moderator and make sure that everyone's feeling heard and, and bringing their their thoughts to the fore. And I think we will have you do a webinar for our membership about this community square concept. And it, it kind of feels like this is a return to roots in some way. Um, when when communities were were smaller and you know nostalgically we were like oh well, things were less complex, which is always just trifle because things have always been complex for for people living in 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 the world but it seems like it's a return to a local and more tangible connection with others in your community which it sounds like is really what what you're bringing out through the relevance project am i all faced with, with no that? that's 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 correct if it's nostalgic or retro that's that might be a feather in our cap but you know look at the name the public square there the, every community had a public square or a village square it was usually where the bulletin board was or where they brought out, um, what do you call those things? You put your arms and your legs in them. And they, were oh. always, <laughs> they were always nearby. It was sort of a metaphorical uh, reminder. But there was always a bulletin board there. Well, the newspaper used to be the bulletin board, but through technology, it can be much more. It can be that community forums. You mentioned Zoom. I see a number of organizations doing that. It is a different way of moderating. I like the in-person, but I understand the restrictions right now. But it it does have some nostalgia. But I can tell you what we did with the public square. I, I would love to see more newsrooms have different ways of doing it. Uh, I'd like to see what the creative aspect. You know, innovation always gets linked to the product. But the best innovation is actually the process. If we can reinvent the process of engaging our customers with all the tools we have today, we'll find our future even even more. And so uh, in the next six months, one of my charges is to spend more time articulating what it means to be the community forum. I have the experience of the public square, but I'm open for ideas on how we can do this forward. I know there's some fertile minds out there um, that, that are either budding moderators or budding connectors. And I, and I guarantee you, it will make you a better newspaper or and a better forum for your readers. Well, I look forward to continuing this conversation. I think you've given us so much to think about. And I feel like there's a couple ways that we can specifically follow up to kind of introduce this idea and, and maybe do a community forum specifically around this topic with our members. So looking forward to working with you more on this. Well, you, have the, well, you have the added advantage that if you can get civic conversation in your association, somebody down the street might see it, and maybe the ripple effect will be even huger. Huge. No, absolutely. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> Always the editor. Everybody needs an editor. <laughs> the truer words never spoken. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate you joining us. For those who don't have access to the show notes, do you want to um, just do a shout out on 
your URL and your email address um, for our listeners. Sure, thank you. It's it, the website where the relevant points and the re- resource revenue resource are located is www.relevanceproject.net. And you can get me by my initials, TAS at relevanceproject.net. And I will respond to you because I want to be super relevant. <laughs> Terrific. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Five Dubs with Rebecca Snyder. Please subscribe and leave us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts so that others can find us. What do you want to know about local journalism? Email me at rsnyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, at mddcpress.com. Interested in supporting our podcast and journalism? Please donate to our 501c3 Press Foundation. Find out more and see the full episode list and show notes at www.5-dubs.com.